Welcome, everyone. So I'm going to give it a minute. And we're going to talk a little bit about water before I start the docu. This will be chapter one. I wasn't expecting to play this today, but considering that someone I work with, genius, said maybe this is the time, then so be it. Let's do it. Now, let me just show you something that I've talked about before. Um, to most reporters, to most reporters, excuse me, my microphone was down. To most reporters that are supposedly on our side and not, I have brought this to their attention in regards to what they were doing with the Intel plant and the schematics that I've seen with the pipes. You know, like how do you know randomly that so many years ago, they had decided through eminent domain to take farmland in the state of Ohio to pipe. Well, it wasn't just gas, but I digress. And I have talked about the water crisis in the sense of, well, we have one because it's one company that's buying it all, but we also have one because it's all bad. You know, I'm seeing people testing the water. Oh my gosh, it's supposed to be 30 to 900 and it's 911. And it's like, have you checked your water before the derailment? No, I've checked mine and it's off the chain. So this is an old, old-ish report. I'd like to share this with you. It's just a, a couple of minutes since we're talking water. Let's go. In 2005, the Nestle CEO implied that having access to water wasn't a basic human right. Das Wasser zu einem äh, äh, öffentlichen Recht erklärt wird. Das heißt, als Mensch sollten Sie einfach Recht haben, um Wasser zu haben. Das ist die eine Extremlösung. Ja? After the media criticized him for this, he later backtracked. But to see how he really feels, we can simply look at Nestle's actions when it comes to water. For example, in Pakistan in 2013, Nestle began diverting clean drinking water away from villages and towns and then began bottling it in their factories and selling it back to the same people they took the water from, but at a much, much higher price. The big issue is that Nestle had taken so much water that thousands were forced to drink dirty sludge water instead because these people couldn't afford to buy the expensive bottled water, which, remember, was theirs to begin with. Nestle's strategy was essentially to deprive people of a necessity like clean water and then supply them an expensive alternative. Since Nestle arrived in the country, there are claims they have sucked the land dry and caused water levels to sink hundreds of feet. And it's not just in developing countries where Nestle does this. For example, in America, when California was suffering from droughts, many companies moved their operations out of the state, but not Nestle. In the midst of this very serious water shortage, Nestle Waters continued to pump 705 million gallons of fresh water from California's national parks, draining some of the state's remaining water resources to sell back to Californians. And when asked about this, the Nestle Waters CEO said that if he could bottle more of California's water for profit during the drought, he would. 
Likewise, in Michigan, it was reported Neste pumps 747 liters of fresh water every minute out of the state's reserves, and that Neste pays only $200 to take 130 million gallons of Michigan's water. After Neste caused a drastic reduction in the state's water levels, a judge eventually ordered Neste to stop its operations due to the ecological harm they were causing. Whilst it's perhaps not widely known, the reality is Nestle has the largest bottled water operation in the world, and owns over 50 brands of bottled water. So Nestle are actually incentivized to target places with limited clean water available from their own natural resources, because if they buy up lots of the natural water supplies and create a shortage, it creates massive demand. If you've seen Mad Max Fury Road, you may remember the guy who was hoarding all the water, and that's not too dissimilar from Nestle's approach. But perhaps where Nestle got a lot of their inspiration was the classic British show Only Fools and Horses. In one episode, the characters decide to sell bottled water by claiming it came from a natural spring, when really it just came straight out of the tap. Now, this show was a comedy, but Nestle decided to basically do that in real life. Nestle has simply bottled up water that comes from the exact same municipal supplies as tap water and advertised it as coming from Clear Mountain Springs, thus allowing them to add a huge markup to the price. When, in fact, they can buy a tank of this water for $10, use it to fill thousands of plastic bottles, and resell this glorified tap water for an estimated $50,000. As Americans, we should take a look and see who is funded by Nestle and how they have all the water that I've talked about before, because that is where you see what is what. So, with no further ado, allow me to please initiate this documentary. Now, it was prompted mostly because of the train derailment that shouldn't have happened yet. Yet, it was always planned, kind of like the comedy that talked about taking everybody's water. It's almost like the movie they made about train derailments, which happen all the time around the nation. This one, like I said, so weird, happened over the border where the only person suggesting that the axle was wrong is the New York Times. So now they're going to bring it down to infrastructure when it's not the case. Now, please enjoy chapter one of what I like to call the secret circle series. Retail, humans are a commodity. Please enjoy. This has been going on for a long, long, long time. Um, at, at, at least 2017. And last week we were told 2019. Um, that's what I took away from it today. Thank you. Thanks, so, guys. Appreciate it. Lock your doors tonight. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Lock your doors tonight. Thank you. The camera doesn't get enough credit for what it's able to do. With the right still, cut, rewind, and perspective, you can provide happy, or thoughts full of fear. You have a plethora to choose from globally, both corporate-sponsored and not, yet those are being reduced because we have some directors that are very, very upset. We seem to be disrupting their script as they pull from everything that they have from you watching you. Directors, plot, 
They're literally hired to be able to orchestrate a narrative upon a narrative. Fear sells, panic sells, and well, your talking heads, both left and right, do the job to keep you in the dark. And you are simply a spectator, <laughs> but you're also a passive participant. But if you look behind the code, look behind the narratives they feed you, you can pinpoint the conductor of this symphony guides you to sleep. Dirty money makes the world go round. Well, soon it'll be digital and they'll be okay, but you won't. They have been able to corrupt our governments, our law enforcement, and even our courts. And your doctors, you can't even trust them anymore. They're on the take. Literal blood money. Blood money. But you know they've thrown the kitchen sink at the whole world. We have earthquakes, spy balloons, unidentified flying objects, insanely satanic performances on global television for awards. Spy balloons, earthquakes, aliens, train derailments that are a hot topic. Two weeks later, another three no one's talking about. Trucks toppled over. People stepping down, Marburgs, COVID vaccines now protect you from diabetes as well. Aside from the fact that the side effect may be sudden death, adult sudden death syndrome, we're all confused and we require clarity. We'll hear some clarity. Do we have a war going on? Yes. It is a war for your mind. A war to confuse you so you can't see what they are doing. But where? going to pay attention. We should not be paying attention to the story they're telling us, but the one they aren't. And I myself go and look for information, not only behind the code, but in person. What I discovered in Massachusetts, well, this is my fate. When I told my friend, I received the document. That says it all. I have been warning. I have been warning for a very, very long time. It's unfortunate. You can search it up. I've always said the majority of human trafficking victims are not just to be sexually dominated, trafficked, and disposed of, especially children. That's just advice. It's about experimentation and spare parts. So today, we will explore that. And just to give you a little bit of a heads up, a lot of what you'll see is extremely disturbing. So I highly suggest that if you have a faint heart, and still want to be on that blue pill and not see, that you turn this off. I'm about to show you that they've been doing this all in the open, reporting every now and then, of course. Ray, this is horrific. They don't want you to know 
how important the cargo is to them. They're willing for you to go into conspiracy routes of killing their fish and tainting their water, which indeed seems like the case. But it's because they're hiding more. Because if indeed it is what I believe it is, which are components of fentanyl, because one thing people don't tell you is that fentanyl is a fantastic drug to ensure the viability of human organs. And here's the fun fact. Fentanyl, when you die and overdose from it, guess what? Your chances of becoming an organ donor have exponentially increased. Most organ donors in America last year were from fentanyl overdoses. And you know what else is funny? In China, fentanyl is used on prisoners whom they harvest organs from. So you have to ask yourself, is this just a drug? Or are we actually actively importing this via our railways? Because if it is, we're seeing a spike in it. Massachusetts already introduced legislation to offer to prisoners a reduced or even canceled sentence if they decide to donate an organ. And there are many more states that are following suit. I think California should be paying attention. He wants to know if there are any children on board. The answer's no, but it's hard to tell. This has become a common question on Haiti's border with the Dominican Republic, and it's being asked by police who want to keep Haiti's children at home. Since the earthquake, we've had about 400 cases considered as child trafficking. The road to the Dominican Republic is often paved with good intentions. In some cases, it's about parents dreaming of a better life for their children in Haiti's richer neighbor, jobs and an education for their sons and daughters. The trafficker promises to turn those dreams into reality. Money might change hands, but it can be a nightmare for the children. The aim of trafficking could be domestic services or the sale of child organs, and it could also be The 10 Americans arrested for trying to take 33 children out of Haiti without permission could now face prosecution. Haitian officials say they are thinking of sending the group to the U.S., hoping to quickly resolve the case while sending a message that child trafficking will not be tolerated. This official says the Americans may be handed over to the United States because Haiti's court system is devastated following the January 12th earthquake. The group was arrested near the Dominican border, held in concrete rooms at police headquarters since then. The 10 Americans are affiliated with the Baptist Church in Idaho. They say they were only trying to rescue the abandoned children, ranging in age from two months to 12 years old. One of the Americans is being treated for either severe dehydration or the flu. I'm really praying that, that um, we'll be able to take these kids out, that we'll be able to provide a, a safe and loving home for these kids who have nothing, and um, that all charges will be dropped and that um, they will see our hearts. As for the children, they are now at an orphanage run by Austrians. Investigators want to figure out where the Americans got the children and if any traffickers were involved. Lee Powell, the Associated Press. Now, Arnold Putra is the focal point of this video because he has done some very 
um, macabre, morbid things that I just am surprised that a lot more of the public don't know about. Okay, so it starts off with this post. Okay, so this this happened way back when. This was in 2016 when he actually, you know, uh, proudly posted this onto his Instagram in which he uh, advertised a handbag made out of a child's spine. And it reads in the caption, alligator tongue basket bag handle made of an entire child's spine who had osteoporosis collection amatitis made in Los Angeles. Now, yes, a lot of people with the uh, reactions uh, did find it taboo as it should be, right? Now, I am not quite sure how the laws work, okay? So if anybody is familiar with the laws of the land with imports, exports, you know, uh, what what is allowed as far as like parts, animal parts, and human parts, like that's the part that I don't quite know. Uh, he claims that he ethically sourced the child's spine from a medical surplus, which is strange to me. And my biggest question is like, how do we even trust what he says? Like, was this a child with osteoporosis? Like, or I mean, there's just a lot of lingering questions you understand. And so, um, you know, that's, that's really alarming that somebody can source and purchase a human body part like that a child's spine and who are we to trust that this child actually had osteoporosis or if this was a just a harvested spine somehow right i know that's morbid but i mean this guy has it on a purse right you know the rubber on the bottom of balenciaga sneakers do you know what that's made out of it is made out of buckle fat yeah buckle fat that is fat that is removed by a surgeon And by law, surgeons are required to send their buckle fat to a a processing plant in Ohio. There's a lot of shit going on in Ohio. And in return at this plant, they make the rubber for the bottom of the Balenciaga shoes. Ooh, 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 ooh. Wow. When it comes to these sickos, there isn't a part of the body that goes to waste. Arnold Putra is the focal point of this video because he has done some very um, macabre, morbid things that I just am surprised that a lot more of the public don't know about. Okay, so it starts off with this post. Okay, so this this happened way back when. This was in 2016 when he actually, you know, uh, proudly posted this onto his Instagram in which he uh, advertised a handbag. I am constantly taking painkillers. The pain is terrible. I am exhausted. I met him at night. He blindfolded me with the bandage. I was so scared. I got paid six and a half thousand pounds. I've already spent most of the money paying the rent and clearing my debt. I exploit people. That's what I do. Some of my clients would have died anyway. I know what I'm doing is illegal, but I'm helping people. That's how I see it.
I was once asked to get an eye, and I found a client who was willing to sell his eye. I don't really care if the client dies as long as I got what I wanted. Foreigners who traveled and they obtained organs, they came with much more problems. They came with bad organs, without being masked, they acquired infections, tuberculosis, HIV, and so on. Because those operations to start with were done in very poor circumstances. I already regret it, but what can I do? I didn't want to do this, but I'm desperate. I had no other choice. In a truly brutal case of human cruelty, a young boy from China's northern Shanxi province was kidnapped near his home on Monday evening, only to be found hours later wailing in pain with his eyes gouged out in what appears to be an attack carried out by black market organ traffickers. Six-year-old Bin Bin went into the street near his house to play sometime before 6pm. An hour or two later, his mother called him inside, but he was nowhere to be found. A farmer found the young boy in a field hours later, covered in blood, his eye sockets empty. Police found the child's eyes nearby, the corneas had been removed. On the way to hospital, Bin Bin told his distraught father what he remembered. His story tells of a woman who drugged him before cutting his eyes out. She apparently said to him, Don't cry, don't cry and I won't gouge out your eyes. Corneas for corrective eyesight surgery are in high demand as they can be taken from people of any age and any blood type. Anyone who knows where the corneas are located in the eye can extract them. Police are offering a 100,000 renminbi reward for information leading to the arrest of the suspect. With massive demand for organs in China and only limited supply, a thriving illegal organ trade has developed. Children's organs fetch a higher price, one organ trader told Chinese media in 2010. Most people think the younger the donor is, the better the quality of organs, the unnamed trafficker said. Because if indeed it is what I believe it is, which are components of fentanyl, because one thing people don't tell you is that fentanyl is a fantastic drug to ensure the viability of human organs. And here's a fun fact, fentanyl. When you die and overdose from it, guess what? Your chances of becoming an organ donor have exponentially increased. Most organ donors in America last year were from fentanyl overdoses. And you know what else is funny? In China, fentanyl is used on prisoners whom they harvest organs from. So you have to ask yourself, is this just a drug? Or are we actually actively importing this via our railways? Because if it is, we're seeing a spike in it. Massachusetts already introduced legislation to offer to prisoners a reduced or even canceled sentence if they decide to donate an organ. And there are many more states that are following the suit. I think California should be paying attention. 
A new bill proposed in the state house would allow Massachusetts prisoners to donate their organs for reduced sentences. Now, the bill would give people in prisons about a month or even a year off of their initial sentence in exchange for donating an organ or bone marrow. Now, the act was proposed by representatives Carlos Gonzalez and Judith Garcia. They say it would restore bodily autonomy for those who are incarcerated, as well as expand the pool of donors to help extend the chances of life. Critics are calling the bill perverse and exploitive. Some even say it might be a violation of federal law. number of opioid deaths now contributing to a record number of organ donations. In central and southeastern Ohio, organ donations increased by 33%. 25% of those organ donors died of a drug overdose. You know, many times people think that somebody that died from a drug overdose doesn't have the opportunity to become an organ donor, and, and that's actually not true. Andrew Mullins is the Director of Partner Services for Lifeline of Ohio, the organization that coordinates organ and tissue donations. He says every organ donated is examined thoroughly. Thoroughly uh, tested, including um, looking at how well they're functioning, um, looking at blood type, you know, matching the blood type of the donor with the recipient, as well as any potential communicable disease, including HIV, hepatitis B, hepatitis C. He says it's safe and there's no chance an organ donated from someone who died of a drug overdose can transmit that person's addiction. So you go then you say, Mr. Smith, hello. Right now, you're inside the Henry Ford Simulation Center with the director of the Neurointensive Care Unit, Dr. Panos Varalis. He's one of the physicians who literally wrote the book on determining brain death by developing the national standard. It's tragic because, uh, you know, most of these patients, uh, in essence, have a catastrophic brain injury that happened just like that. Mark Dans is our technician. Using computer simulations and a mannequin we're calling Sim Smith, we're able to see in real time the very detailed steps physicians throughout the country use as the standard to determine brain death. Mr. Smith is being intubated. That's the tube down his throat to help him breathe. He's being ventilated by the machine that is breathing for him. Mr. Smith, look at, look at me, please. Look at me over here. A specific series of tests are done to determine any brain activity. Give pain on the other side, and then you inject cold water, 60 cc's, in the ER of the patient. And you keep the eyes open and you try to see actually if the eyes move. You're trying to create discomfort to make them respond. They are in deep coma, so the, the way to examine a comatose patient is to try to elicit any responses. Flash a light and you try to see if the pupils are constricting. If you are brain dead, the eyes are not moving. The blood gas levels are checked for carbon dioxide. So the level of CO2 has to be 60, so that means the body is collecting CO2, it's not dispelling it. Correct, exactly. And then Mr. Smith is taken off the breathing machine to see if he can or will breathe on his own. The machine is breathing, let's say, 10, 10 times a minute. If he's breathing 15 times a minute, he's not brain dead. 
Hmm. In the case of 14-year-old Abigail Kopp, who was shot in Kalamazoo over the weekend. Abigail was not declared medically brain dead. She was being assessed for possible organ donation because of the grave nature of her injuries, but was not on her way to having her organs removed. So you can see there is a standard of care as well as a sequence. But you know what? Let's just say that you're a loved one and you're very, very emotional, obviously, and you feel like there's a different level of expertise at a particular hospital or a smaller institution. This is what families can do. They can specifically ask for a neurosurgeon or a neurologist to do at least one brain death examination. They're trained at a very specific level and that takes all doubt off the table. But then I had a baby, Joseph, in 1975 who had flat brain waves and was said to be brain dead. And uh, uh, it was suggested to stop treating him. I said, well, I don't do that. I treat babies, some live, some die, and kept treating him. And uh, he did eventually get off the ventilator and he went to school and he got straight A's and ran tramp and played baseball. And he's married, he has three children. So because of him, after about six months, when he continued to live and was doing much better than anybody would have predicted, I started to investigate brain death. And uh, um, it, it took about two years till I understood the language of brain death. Uh, uh, brain death is, is a lie. Uh, it, it's a, a, a lie that's been told over and over again. So people don't even realize it's a lie anymore. But it's been a lie from the beginning, continues to be a lie. So um, uh, I published in in the medical literature, I have an article in the uh, in Journal of the American Medical Association. I have an uh, article in the Gonzaga Law Review. It's 85 pages. It has 244 footnotes to it. And, and uh, uh, because of that, eventually I have uh, continued to uh, uh, talk about brain death. Brain death is a lie. I have, talked all, all over the United States, I've, um, I've talked in many countries. The, the truth is easy, and, and then once you deviate from the truth, then you ha have, first it's this false, but then when people become conscious of it's false, then it's a lie. Brain death is a, a, is a lie. The way it occurred was that Christian Bernard did the first heart transplant in South Africa in 1967. Mm -hmm. Three days later, they did the second heart transplant, and you don't know where that is, but I'll tell you, it was done in Brooklyn, New York. And what what they did is they cut the beating heart out of a three-day-old baby and transplanted it into an 18-day-old baby. And at the end of their surgeries, a short time after the end of their surgeries, both of those babies were dead. It was illegal, it was immoral. And so they had to do something to make it legal. And so what they did is they set up a committee at Harvard, and the committee invented brain death. Uh, the committee did not do studies on dogs or cats or rats. They didn't collect data on human beings. They just invented brain death. And transplants, they have a designated requester, and a designated requester is usually a very nice person who dresses nice and, and befriends the relatives. Can I get you a cup of coffee? Oh, I know this has to be terrible on you. We'll do everything we can to help you. And 
all of that is part of getting them indoctrinated procurement. to get their yeah uh, to get their organs. See, and you cannot get any cannot get any organs from a cadaver. Every organ that's transplanted is a healthy organ, and you can only get healthy organs from living persons. You cannot get any organs for transplant from a cadaver. That's and, why you don't put it on your license. And the things I'm telling you is that you you are not allowed to hear, uh, uh, and because if you hear it, you will be upset, as you all three of you are upset, and rightly so, you should be upset because. Uh, um, Whose organs do they want? They want the organs from the, uh, for, certainly from all children, but especially the people who are 16 to 30. And their life is in jeopardy. If they're unconscious and on a ventilator, they're going to get their organs. And they do everything to get their organs. And, and uh, once the organs are taken, you can't bring them back to life. And so that what they do is they, Tell the relatives, well, you, you know, your 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 daughter Sally would really like to do something good, and this is a way to make something good out of this tragedy, and and uh, or your son, and the while they have been getting organs from accidents and gunshot wounds, they now get more organs from overdose of drugs than they do from accidents and gunshot wounds combined. There are eight deaths a day from overdose in Ohio, and and they they get their organs is, is what they want. And and so what are they doing? They're giving the policemen the Narcan to counteract the drug which gets them into the emergency room, but it doesn't save their life. It gets them in the emergency room and they still get their organs. And so... So diabolically disgusting. Oh, it really is. It See, it's so bad. It makes sense. It's I can't sense. even. Oh my gosh. It's making sense. Yeah. Now, part of part of why I um, uh, when you were on talking about unconscious and pain, and you might have talked about something else. What I'm encouraging you to do is to realize that that there are common denominators of all of this. The common denominator is that each person is unique and unrepeatable and special. And a person is is alive, uh, but uh, so are the dogs and cats running around that are alive, and so are the trees alive, but they don't have the life that the person has. And each person has that life whether that person can walk or talk or show consciousness. In brain death, they, they do only three things for brain death. One is the, the patient does not show consciousness. The patient does not have brainstem reflexes that, that involve the eye or the ear. So there's about 14 brainstem reflexes, but they test only six. They don't test the others. And then the, the test that they do that uh, is called the apnea test. It's really not a test, it's a procedure. And what they do is take the ventilator away uh, for 10 minutes. 
and the patient has to demonstrate that they can take a breath in that 10 minutes, or that becomes the signal to cut out their organs. During the time they're off the ventilator, the carbon dioxide builds up, the acids build up, that makes the brain swell worse and makes them get worse. So everybody must learn to not do an apnea test. You almost learn it now. And, and you have to know it. I hope you never have to use it on your relatives, but you need to learn it. Do not do an apnea test. No one should ever have the procedure of an apnea test. And then uh, you ha have to know that the overdose of drugs, they need time to heal. You know, right now, and I got a text as I was coming in from the father of a girl in Canada, Takesha, uh, McKitty, you, you can Google her if you want, Takesha McKitty. Uh, uh, um, I, was, I, gave, I was talking in New York and I was going to New Jersey the next day and they called me and asked me if I would um, um, help with Takesha. So I went to Canada to help her. Uh, uh, she overdosed on September the 14th. On September the 20th, they issued a death certificate on her. Uh, she's still very much alive. She moves her feet. She moves her legs. Uh, you know, and, I mean, I could. But she has a death certificate. She has a death certificate. She has a death certificate on September the twentieth, and th this is uh, uh, December the fifth. You know, she's right. still alive. She's still alive. Yes, but With they. With a death certificate. But she could have had her organs cut out on September the twentieth, but by going sure. there, put a stop to that. So she was not dissected. Every. Everybody who um, who has their organs taken, they are all dissected alive. There's no organs you can get from a cadaver. My wife will go crazy when she hears this because she's donating her organs if she has she dies and has a car accident or anything. Yeah, she should not be an organ donor. And so what she has to do, she must go back to the license bureau and and uh, and revoke that and the law says it's a revocation it's not a refusal and they can still get her organs uh, and that law has uh, has been passed here in Ohio so you ask as we came in have I been here before yes I came here to testify against that law and and uh, and so then when they had hearings two weeks later I came back again and they said oh um, we ordinarily don't allow people to testify more than once. Well, what is that kind of stuff? What kind of uh, outfit what? do we have? So, so I didn't say anything, but then they said, but we'll let you testify because you're a doctor. And I think to myself, why should they let me testify versus anybody else more than once? But um, uh, in the state of Ohio, Every representative and every senator voted for the bill to make it so that everyone is an organ donor. Uh, and, and it's presumed that everyone is an organ donor, and it's presumed that everyone has consented to everything to be done to them to see if their organs are good for someone else and to keep their organs in good shape so they can find someone to give, give them to. It, it's really, uh, I think it's against... Uh, 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 Article 13 of the Constitution of the United States, and I think it's against the uh, 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 Article 8 of the Constitution of Ohio. I might have the 8 and the 13 mixed up, mixed up between Ohio, but I think it's against the because. Um,
sorry about that. Um, but but the, the law, it's called the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act. It's already been passed in 47 states, including Ohio, and every representative in Ohio voted for it. Only one senator voted against it, and that was the black senator, because I, I think she might have heard what I said, that it's, it's a form of slavery. They've made slaves of all of us. It's involuntary servitude, what they've done. And I think it's against the Constitution of, of, our, um, uh, of our federal government and the Constitution of our uh, state government. And, uh, and so, so um, um, the law says, though, if you have signed up to be an organ donor and then you go back to the License Bureau, the law says that's a revocation, but it's not a refusal. You must have a document of refusal. Your wife must get a document of acute refusal. Now, you might say, and I don't know how, how old your wife is, but compared to me, she's just a kid, I'm sure. Uh, um, Same as me, 75. Just a kid. Uh, uh, the oldest organ donor that I've read about was 91. They will take organs from anybody. It's just that they have class A organs, those are those are 16 to 30, and then as you get further away from that with different ages, different diseases, like they have taken organs from people with AIDS. Uh, granted, they give them to other people with AIDS, but they're class B organs. They have class A organs, class B organs, and that kind of thing. So that document of refusal has to be a, a, unauthorized by an attorney that you presented to the Bureau of Motor Vehicles? I'll give you something that you can do. Okay. I'll, I'll, give you something that you can take with you. Now, the point about where you, your focus has been on vaccines, and rightly so, something stimulates you to become focused on that, whatever it is. And that's part of why I ask some of the questions I ask as to how, how you get involved. And, and I've told you a little bit about how I got involved and, and I also told you I'm one of the leaders in neonatology for many years and then uh, um, and then because of this brain death thing I've gotten off into paying attention to that and, and teaching people that about brain death. Brain death is a mendacity and you might go home and look up the word mendacity. Uh, it's not a new word uh, and the first use of the word mendacity was around 1300 uh, when it was used, at least that's what I found. And it had to do with some false religion. And, and uh, mendacity means a lie, a deception, but it's a deliberate deception uh, uh, to mislead you. And that's why I think it's the best term for what brain death is. Um, everybody who's brain dead uh, everybody who's called brain dead has a beating heart circulation and respiration. Uh, they, if they didn't have that, you wouldn't have to call them brain dead. You could call them dead, uh, but they're all alive. So, anyway. Do you mind touching on your background What's that? a little bit? Do you mind touching on your background a little bit, please? My background? Yes. Well, first of all, I was born in Norwood, Ohio, and went to Xavier University in Cincinnati, and then I went to St. Louis University to medical school and trained as a pediatrician, took care of children with leukemia and tumors for about six years, and during that time saw how many infants died 
and there were no treatments. And so it seemed like we should be able to do something. I mean, I was at a children's hospital where we did things for children of all ages, but not infants. And, and so um, uh, I started a special care nursery in 1963 and, uh, and, and uh, continued there. So how does the organ donation system work in the United States? And why is there such a scarcity of organs? The Organ Procurement and Transplantation Network, or OPTN, is a public-private partnership that connects many organizations across the country that are involved in the organ transplant process. The United Network for Organ Sharing, or UNOS, manages the system. CNBC spoke with Brian Shepard before he stepped down as UNOS CEO in September 2022. UNOS is really the engine that drives organ donation and transplant in the United States. We are a nonprofit in Virginia that holds a government contract that puts us sort of in the middle of all the entities in donation and transplant that participate in the process. One of UNOS's responsibilities is to manage the list of candidates waiting for a transplant. We call it wait list and people think about it that way, but it, it really is more dynamic and a little more complicated than that. We've created that computer algorithm through dozens of committees of doctors and patients and other professionals from across the country. We have a committee for kidney, we have a committee for liver, we have a committee for heart and lung and pancreas. It is different for every organ. Deceased donors must die under very specific circumstances. Typically, this means the donor died in the hospital while on a ventilator and there was still blood and oxygen flowing through the organs. That's when the Organ Procurement Organization, or OPO, steps in. They are the people who are trained to come and make the approach once the uh, treating team has declared death. There are a bunch of rules that they use, primarily biology. Can't put a big heart in a little person. Can't put the wrong blood type liver in a person with a different blood type. The body won't accept it. The waiting list is a pretty fair place to be. And then, and, and the, the data on our equity tracker will show that. There's a hidden access point or rationing point that goes on that we don't see. And what that is, is whether you get in the hospital in the first place. In the United States, insurance plans can be vastly different from person to person. An estimated 41 million American adults were not adequately insured in the first half of 2020, according to a Commonwealth Fund report. Costs vary based on the organ being transplanted. The average total of bill charges for a kidney and pancreas transplant like Patrick received are around $713,000. Those are the charges that initially get processed through the system. It isn't, is not necessarily what you know, what the insurer might pay or what an individual might pay out of pocket. Organ transplants are really unique in terms of you know, needing that metric of another half of year post-care in terms of what's being done and the, the amount of costs associated with that. Patients may have to pay for things such as rehabilitation services, testing, and anti-rejection drugs, which can frequently add up to thousands of dollars a month. The biggest thing that could drive a difference in your likelihood of getting a transplant once you're on the waiting list, it's geography. The U.S. was divided into 11 different regions in 1986 to help manage the national network. But geographical disparities developed around the country, according to the Organ Donation and Transportation Alliance. Public health problems, sadly, do drive the rates at which people die and can then be asked about organ donation. The states where the transplant programs have the highest rates of death of people who can be organ donors want to keep them there. Other states say, look, you shouldn't penalize us because we're healthier. There are more people waiting in New York than there are in Arkansas. So it's a national system we should share. And as morbid as it sounds, they told me to 
if I wanted to list in a region where there were open carry uh, allotments because that means there's more of an influx of donated organs. And I remember them telling me this is going to be very dark, but this and it was a transplant coordinator who told me that someone whose job it is to get you listed. And they said, some people do it. And if you want to increase your chances, you list in multiple regions. We've made changes uh, in, the, in the last few years that make it more likely that geography plays a smaller role in your likelihood of getting a transplant. One proposal is a framework known as continuous distribution, which would eliminate hard geographic boundaries and prioritize the sickest candidates and those with the best presumed outcomes. The goal is to create a more equitable system for patients. There are physical limitations on being able to transport an organ just anywhere for any amount of time. Uh, and that's important. Uh, we don't want a system that's theoretically fair but wastes organs. So there is still some geographic decision-making in our process. One of the most in-demand organs is the kidney. We did not sign up for this. I knew she had to have an autopsy, but this is like, remove her, remove her, remove this. Rem she was 10 years old. Rebecca Villarreal has questions. Preserve each lung. It's <laughs> about what happened to her adopted granddaughter after she died. Four days after Elena Castilla died, this memo was sent to the doctor who would perform her autopsy, giving instructions to harvest Elena's organs. Who are these monsters? are monsters. Who are these people? I didn't sign no papers. I didn't sign for them to disassemble. In the letter signed by Chief Medical Examiner Dr. Sam Andrews, it instructs the doctor to preserve the brain, remove the cervical spine, eyes, and lungs, among other things. Who is this? Because this is not all of my baby. Because what I'm reading here, this is all my child right here. Remove flesh, hang, preserve the heart. I don't even have raw heart. We tried to see copies of these autopsies from the ME's office, but no one returned our call. <coughs> Elena suffered most of her life from the effects of shaken baby syndrome. Rebecca adopted Elena when she was just one years old. She was a fighter. She got that for grandma. Rebecca said she was told because of the shaken baby syndrome, an autopsy needed to be done, but she never agreed to organs being harvested. They literally disassembled my child. She wasn't a, a manufactured home. She wasn't a toy. She wasn't a doll. She was a person. It's unknown why Dr. Andrews and the pathology labs requested the organs to be taken out. The second time Jacqueline Johnson cried next to her son Kendrick's grave, the first time, he was being lowered into the ground. This time, he's being pulled out of it. Did you ever expect you'd have to exhume his body? No, I didn't expect to have to bury his body. In June, Kendrick's body was sent to Florida. The Johnsons hired Dr. Bill Anderson to conduct an independent second autopsy. In that autopsy, Anderson told the Johnsons he'd found evidence that Kendrick died as the result of a blow to the neck and not accidental asphyxia after slipping into a rolled gym mat at school, as investigators in Georgia had said. But what Dr. Anderson did not find shocked them. When we got the body uh, for the second autopsy, that organs 
the heart, lungs, liver, etc., were not with the body. The brain? The brain. They were all absent. Every organ from the top of Kendrick's head to his pelvis, gone. And his family had no idea. We have been let down again. And when we buried Kendrick, we thought we was burying Kendrick, not half of Kendrick. Uh, I'm not sure at this point who did not return the organs to the body, but I know when we got the body, uh, the organs were not there. So CNN contacted the two entities that had custody of Kendrick's body and access to his organs. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation, which conducted the first autopsy in January, and Harrington Funeral Home, which the Johnsons chose to embalm and prepare Kendrick's body for burial days later. A spokeswoman for the state tells CNN after its autopsy, the organs were placed in Johnson's body, the body was closed, then the body was released to the funeral home. State investigators say it's their normal practice, but what happened after his body arrived at the funeral home was anything but normal. What was in the place of the organs? Newspaper. Newspaper. Dr. Anderson showed me the pictures of Kendrick's body he'd taken during the second autopsy. It's a Black Friday ad, JCPenney ad. Yes. Stuff in that newspaper in like he was a garbage can inside his body. It's unbelievable. I'd imagine that that's a different kind of pain. Yeah. Why do you think that there would be newspaper stuffed in, in your child? I never heard of that before. Never. Neither had the founder of a national embalming academy contacted by CNN who said it's not consistent with the standards of care in the industry, nor had the president of the National Association of Medical Examiners who told CNN he's never heard of this practice. Why would the funeral home discard his organs and stuff them with newspaper? The question is, why did he tell us? So what exactly did the Harrington Funeral Home do with Kendrick's organs? And why was he stuffed with old newspaper? We went to their office to find out, but their response to us? No comment. However, in a letter to the Johnson's attorney, Harrington Funeral Home owner Antonio Harrington denies he received Kendrick's organs. He writes in part, his internal organs were destroyed through natural process and henceforth were discarded before the body was sent back to Valdosta. It's another disappointing answer for parents determined to know what happened to their son before and now after. And this is a story many of us have heard before, a mysterious white van being used to abduct young women. But this time, Baltimore City Mayor Jack Young is saying it. He says people need to be aware it could happen. 11 News reporter Vanessa Herring is live at City Hall with the disturbing details. Vanessa. And Mayor Jack Young made that comment about a suspicious white van during an interview this afternoon. Take a listen to what he said. We're getting reports of somebody in a white van um, trying to snatch up young girls uh, for human trafficking and for selling body parts, I'm told. So we have to really be careful because there's so much evil going on, not just in the city of Baltimore, but around the country. Asked if he heard that from Baltimore police, Mayor Jack Young said... No, citizens oh. are. It's all over Facebook. Um, and um, that's something that um, our police officers are aware of because, um, you know, it's been reported. We called BPD. A spokesman for the police department tells me they're aware of posts on social media, but they don't have any reports of actual incidents. 
Then we called the mayor's office. A spokesman says Young was making a general comment and not talking about a specific incident. The mayor offered this advice to citizens during the interview. Don't park near a white van. Make sure that you um, look at your surroundings and make sure you keep your cell phone in case somebody try to abduct you and um, call 911 right away. While um, it's important that we do raise awareness of human trafficking, I would note that um, that rarely are people snatched off the, uh, you know, as you may see in film or may see on social media. City Councilman Christopher Burnett is co-chair of the Baltimore City Human Trafficking Collaborative. Traffickers typically use coercive tactics, whether that be uh, through relationships or drugs or um, or resources like housing. Um, they, they prey on the vulnerabilities of, of, of victims. The mix of men and money is bringing another plague to Williston. This undercover footage reveals the underbelly of the oil boom. Wherever you have lots of men and lots of money, you're going to find prostitution and you're going to find trafficking. If you want to get a hooker, there's a website dedicated to hookers here. Really? It's called Backpage.com. So what I do is I'll punch in Williston. And then you go over here to Escorts. Wendy Lazenko says an influx of money and a highly skewed ratio of men to women has fueled a massive boom in prostitution, often arranged through websites like Backpage.com. We typed in Williston. These are all the girls who just showed up today. This looks like dozens, four pages. Mm. But Lazenko is not just looking for prostitutes. So oftentimes the underage girls, they'll have their face covered. She's looking for victims of sex trafficking, women and underage girls trapped in a boom town like Williston. I look for identifying marks like tattoos because a lot of the girls under pimp control are branded. Really? They're branded? Yeah, with their pimp's name. Lazenko came to Williston seven months ago to fight the sex trafficking she says is a direct result of the oil boom. Why are you so passionate about this work? First and foremost, I'm a human being <laughs> and I'm a woman and um, I've also experienced some things in my life. I'm a survivor of human trafficking. I was trafficked as a young child. Started running away at a very young age and wound up turning to a friend for help who was under pimp control. She took me to a party and turned me out to her pimp and I was sold that night. And how many girls have you helped since you've been here? Since I've been here now, 10. Word's gotten out now, people trust me. How often do you drive around at night? Um, quite often, actually. Lazenko regularly visits prostitution hotspots in Williston to build relationships and help in any way she can. Shelter, sympathy, even a ticket home. So this right here is a, is a huge area for prostitution and I would, I would assume trafficking. Right here at Walmart? Mm-hmm. That seems so surprising. Wherever the money is and wherever the men are. Next stop, nearby hotels, where Lazenko says most of the sex trafficking occurs. Some of these hotels along this strip um, actually have floors that are bought out by pimps and girls are in those rooms. How dangerous is it for these girls? If a girl shows any sign of wanting to exit, there'll be, you know, there's consequences for that. North Dakota officials admit that women and children are being caught up in trafficking, but their chances of escape are slim. Only one FBI agent is assigned to the problem and the shelters are overflowing. It kills me to know that there are girls being trafficked. 
but I'm going to trust that in time with raising awareness and law enforcement doing their part that we'll be able to offer help. So where are we headed now? Um, down to the strip clubs. We're holding a self-defense class for the, the girls. And so I just want to go in and remind the girls real quick that the class is tomorrow. Until reinforcements arrive, Lazenko continues her mission to protect the victims of North Dakota's oil boom. North Dakota's black gold will continue to flow for decades to come, fueling America's drive for energy independence. But the boom has brought big city problems to these small farming towns, and life here may never be the same. When you look back at how things used to be, do you have a longing for the old days? I guess you do, but you know, I always look at you can never go home. We've gone through some real rough times, but we'll work through this and Williston will come out, you know, and be a, probably be a good town again someday. Case started here, according to sources, when a man named Arthur Rathburn was shipping human body parts through Metro Airport. Get this, the box leaked blood. Those cargo haulers then called for help. Why were you stockpiling hundreds of human body parts here, sir? That's Art Rathburn, and remember his business 13 months ago? For two days, federal investigators dressed in hazmat suits removed body parts of a thousand different people. Arms, legs, heads cut up and kept on ice, not embalmed, so they would be fresh for the black market. Today, the rundown warehouse on Detroit's east side is shuttered and up for sale. Sources say Rathburn's seized records led them to the Chicago area today, a business called Biological Resource Center in Rosemont. It's difficult to see from the outside, but sources say the hazmat suits and raid are underway on the sixth floor of this office building. The same paper trail led investigators to Biological Resource Center in Phoenix last January and another raid removing body parts and corpses. There were also ties to similar businesses in Las Vegas. Since these dealt directly with the public, families were left without answers. Julie donated her husband Steve's body and was promised his cremated remains back in a month. Confused and, and angry. We thought this, this was going to be doing some good. Yet it doesn't sound like it is. What do you say to all those families who had no idea their loved ones were in here? Michigan pulled Art Rathburn's license last year after our reporting, even though they were told about his problems two years before. You can go find out what the heck he is doing, and that wasn't done. Right? Did we do something two years ago? No, we didn't. Are we doing an investigation now? Yes, we are. Are you worried about going to prison? Now, no one has been charged by the feds yet. There are actually two locations involved in this raid going on right now in the Chicago area. The offices in Rosemont and the lab in another suburb where they have found body parts. But my sources say this case is winding down and with this new evidence in Chicago, they can now finish this case after some 13 months. This is so gruesome. Any idea how many families you're talking about here with loved ones that may be involved? It's going to depend a lot on the records. It depends if they're talking hundreds or thousands. And with those records that they've seized, and are those records even up to date, yeah. or have they been doctored? That could be spelled out in an indictment once it's handed yeah. down. Yeah, you, you would not expect it necessarily to be accurate the way it's been handled so far. It could Indeed. be very, yeah. the model. That's Ryan Singleton, a young aspiring model. 
His story begins right here in Atlanta, where he was raised by his mom. Somewhere between third and fourth grade, he figured out that his initials of his name, RTS, backward was STR, which meant star. So he started then making himself into a star. In the fall of 2010, Ryan left Atlanta to pursue his dreams of modeling in New York. He landed seven shows during Mercedes Week in, in New York, and that's, that's huge. After success in New York, Ryan and his two friends, Antonio Faison and Jared Davis, set their sights on Hollywood. Their adventure was all caught on camera as they filmed their pursuit of fame for a docu-series called Are We Famous Yet? The inspiration for our docu-series was simple. It was Ryan. We wanted to document his journey and becoming a model. Once they hit LA, things happened quickly. We were basically in the inner circle. You know, we were being invited to things that we kind of just saw on television and we're like, okay, now we're here. Then Ryan left LA, returned to New York, and suddenly was married. This is a photo of the ceremony. Next to Ryan is Real Housewife of Atlanta star, Cynthia Bailey. But that's not who he was marrying. I find out on social media, Ryan has gotten married to a man twice his age. I don't even know who this is. I don't have a clue as to what's going on. Ryan married Kyth Brewster, but the marriage didn't last, and Ryan returned home to Georgia in the spring of 2013, where things got more mysterious. He says, tell me the truth, okay? Something bad is gonna happen to me, isn't it? Then more mystery. He flew to LA, met someone, then rented a car, and drove himself to Las Vegas. Then before driving back, he called his mom. I said, boy, you okay out there? He said, yeah, I'm getting ready to come home. I said, okay, what do you need? He said, I need you to go in my room and get the $100 out of there. Ryan's mom wired the money to him. Then she received a phone call from Ryan's ex. I said, well, Ryan went to the West Coast and told me not to tell you. He said, oh my God, his life would be in danger. Brewster never told Ryan's mom what the danger was, but it was real. Ryan's car broke down in Death Valley on the ride back from Vegas. He flagged down the highway patrol, who dropped him off at this convenience store, and then Ryan vanished. 74 days later, his mom received another call, this one from investigators who found Ryan's body. He said, ma'am, Ryan didn't have any organs. He didn't have any eyes, he didn't have a heart, he didn't have any lungs, he didn't have any liver, and he didn't have any kidneys. I said, what? That sounds like somebody took my son's organs and sold them on the black market. The autopsy report answers very few questions. The cause and manner of death, both undetermined. If you're looking for a causative element of death here, I think that it's an environmental death. Unforgiving conditions in the desert, 108 degrees, um, him walking, and all that spells disaster. With his organ was not damaged by animals, not a, a pointy-eared, tail-wagging, four-legged, furry animal. That was a human animal or animals that did this to my son. So since the story first aired last night on 11 Alive at 11, there has been an overwhelming reaction on social media for more. Then he went through the autopsy report, the evidence and the pictures from the scene with his investigators, Joseph Scott Morgan and Charles Middlestadt. Together, they analyzed the case to figure out how it can be solved. Let's bottom line now. Let's bottom line. I mean, it's undetermined now. Do you believe that this thing can be solved, that there can be an answer for Ryan's mom, 
from investigators in this case as to what happened to her son. From the scientific standpoint, I think that we've gone as far as the road can take us at this point. We've, we've examined, they have examined the remains. Not only has a forensic pathologist examined the remains, but also a forensic anthropologist has examined the remains. There was no sign of trauma. The only thing that they note as real trauma to Ryan's remains is a skull fracture. But both the forensic pathologist and the forensic anthropologist both state clearly that this is probably a post-mortem event that means after death, and that's as a result, that's as a result of the drying or desiccation that takes place in the bone. Bones became brittle we're left high and dry. So I'd have to defer to good old fashioned shoe leather as far as the cops are concerned with this case. I mean, we, we have the expert telling us we're at the end of that road as far as the scientific side. So really what it leaves is, you know, the, some possible testimonial evidence. Maybe there's some, a witness or two out there that saw him get picked up, that saw him interact with somebody that may be able to shed some light on what happened after that California Highway Patrolman dropped him off there. To me, the likelihood that we get some clarity, some sort of resolution to this case, sadly, and, and I say sadly for the family, for, for Ryan's mom especially, it seems remote at, at best at this point. But if it were to occur, I think it's gonna be in the form of a, of a witness that comes back. Now we're talking 2013, a lot of time has passed. The only way we may get an answer here is if there's more publicity about this case mm -hmm. and maybe someone remembers something or feels obligated to come forward. Here in the United States, nearly 4,000 people a year die waiting for a kidney. And while it's illegal almost everywhere in the world to traffic in organs, there is a thriving global market. Yesterday, I spoke with Kevin Sack of the New York Times, who's been investigating the global organ trade. So you've been looking at this for a year, what did you find? Well, we found that there's, there's organ trafficking really all over the world. Um, I don't know that uh, there's a country that's necessarily immune, including the United States. We had a prosecution here a couple of years ago, the first prosecution of organ trafficking in this country. So it happens everywhere, and obviously it's just because uh, there's a huge demand for kidneys. People are desperate to get these organs and to save their lives. You focused on Israel and you say they have actually a disproportionate influence on the global demand. How is that explained? Well, it's kind of remarkable, but uh, over the last 15 years, um, just time after time when there have been prosecutions um, of organ traffickers, Israel always seems to have some role. They're either, uh, Israelis are either the buyers or the sellers, often they're the brokers. And it has a lot to do with a view among some Orthodox rabbis that brain death, which obviously is the, the optimal circumstance for, uh, for organ donation, is not actually death. Um, and as a result, organ donation rates in Israel are very low, and people have a few places to turn other than the black market. And they are trying to make some steps to change that, right? They are. They passed a law, a series of laws in 2008, and uh, the numbers have, have improved. Um, significant decrease in the number of people who go out of the country. And you also looked at where they go in the supply side, and you focused on Costa Rica. What's the circumstance that people are selling their kidneys for? The way we decided to go about this to sort of illustrate how organ trafficking works was to trace a single network um, from beginning to end. And this was a network in which Israeli brokers sent mostly but not exclusively Israeli recipients to Costa Rica where a prominent nephrologist um, would connect them with kidneys sold by poor Costa Ricans. 
So there was a price tag. And what about the health outcomes and the surgeries? Well, um, there's been some research. It's, it's not terribly conclusive, but the research that has been done suggests that um, people who go overseas for transplants have higher risks of, of injury and of, um, of organ failure and even of death. And that certainly was the case with uh, this pipeline that we examined. There were at least two Israelis who we found who got transplants in Costa Rica who had very poor outcomes. So I, and I imagine that some of these people are being taken advantage of, the, the, the poor people who are selling their kidneys. But it also raises this larger question about the ethics of a marketplace. You, you tackle that in your story. Right. Well, um, you know, these folks have very few choices. And I think when any of us put ourselves in, in their circumstances of either um, having to buy an organ or face, say, five years on dialysis and perhaps even death uh, before they would get to the top of the wait list, um, I think people feel that they would do the same thing if it was them or a loved one. And what it really uh, reinforces is, is how deep um, the gap is between the supply of kidneys and the demand for them. Uh, the World Health Organization estimates that 10% of the need is, is supplied um, by the, the current availability of organs. India was a kind of a ground zero. That's where some people would say it all began and then spread to Pakistan. That is where Bangladesh, where people were poor, willing to sell, and where doctors were willing to do transplants. Australia, people travel to many countries. India, to the Philippines, to China. Beautiful hospitals, beautiful people. Saudis. Saudis love to go to the United States. They love Case Western and you know, the Cleveland Clinic and in the Egypt and internal buying and selling. You know, Canadians are coming to the Philippines, Moldova, Ukraine. Japanese uh, got into the United States, including some Yakuza gangsters. Um, Turkey. Uh, you get a very good deal and you get a very fresh kidney because you don't have to bring the kidney seller in from a third country. You just go to the slums and and get them. And so, Europeans going to China and people from the United States and Canada were going to get executed prisoners from China. I think the kidney for a small profession compared to drug traffickers, uh, for the profession of transplant, for people willing to cash in on it and be corrupted, it was their blood diamond. It was the kidney. The kidneys encased in the bodies of the sellers were going from the southern hemisphere to the north, from east to west, from black bodies into white bodies or brown bodies into white bodies. Very poor men to much better off financially men. Women are far, far less the recipients of trafficked kidneys. This is a man-to-man -man trafficking, essentially. It's probably the most unfair trade that I've ever run across. <laughs> uh, it is capitalism gone mad exclusive report on a kidney racket functioning between India and Nepal. My colleague Anvit is joining us live for more details on this. Anvit, can you give us more details on the functioning of this racket, how it has been functioning and what are the loopholes in the system which allow such a racket to be functioned? 
So, uh, Anjali, see, we started our investigation from Kathmandu. I and uh, video journalist Raju Khatri, we went to Kathmandu and then we travelled extensively uh, across villages and places where these victims come from. In fact, uh, these are donors who have donated their kidneys for uh, good prices that they believe that uh, their kidneys could fetch them. Uh, all because uh, they are they come from a lower e uh, economic group. Uh, they have a very low income. Most of these are either you know working small time farmers or people who are just uh, you know uh, doing menial jobs to get uh, earn their daily bread uh, and when we we travel to Kamre, we travel to Nuwakot, we went to Jamdi, Rampur, uh, we extensive traveler, extensively travelled across villages and uh, what we found that there are several donors, you know, in fact there are some villages like Hoxe, it is also known as the Kidney Valley because uh, most of the uh, most of the family families that live there, uh, one or the two members of the families they have uh, in some point of time given their kidney just to make their families live a better life uh, and uh, see if you talk about uh, police and uh, other agencies there are anti-human trafficking bureaus there are uh, there's NHRC that is working and we spoke to officials also and they have said that uh, it is only the preventive measures that can be taken and not the prosecutions alone will help because the rate of uh, uh, you know organ trafficking is so high between India and Nepal that uh, any time in, in a, a demand is raised in India uh, a search for a donor begins in Nepal and that is that is how the Nepal has over the years become hub of you know supplying kidneys uh, and uh, this is all because the gap in uh, organs availability in the legal market is so less that uh, like Dr. Anoop we heard him saying that at every year at least two lakh patients are registered uh, who require kidney transplant but only 5,000 to 6,000 operations are done transplants are done every day which is the legal way of procuring a kidney so uh, the gap is of at least 1 lakh 80,000 1 lakh 85,000 kidneys that uh, we are short of uh, and that is the reason why this illegal trade has uh, risen uh, to the level that uh, you know we, we are reporting it uh, like this uh, so th these are the reasons and we spoke when we spoke to authorities in Nepal they are also shocked they have been saying that uh, it's not something new and this is an open secret but uh, you know someone has to stop this because uh, in the early 90s when this trade had actually surfaced uh, in the international media uh, it is as prevalent as today as it was then it is equally prevalent even today so the, this is uh, when we spoke to uh, authorities there in Nepal or India everyone has said that this, there, uh, it is high time now you know some action must be taken and some preventive measures uh, need to be put in place and with what is the price of a single kidney and how much do the donors get and the middlemen get? See, uh, as far as the prices are concerned, uh, they may go up to as high as 12 to 15 lakhs or even 20 lakhs in some cases. It all depends on how aware is the donor uh, these days because uh, this is, uh, see, this is illegal, uh, illicit market, uh, black market of organ. And you can ask for as much price depending upon the desperation of the recipient uh, who is probably in India or maybe in some other country, maybe Bangladesh or Middle East. So uh, it all depends. And also over the time, these donors have become very cautious and they have become very aware of how much price uh, their kidneys can fetch them initially you know they there were cases where people were uh, used to be fooled uh, and you know they used to be taken to, from nepal to india on pretext of good jobs on a better living and then they were told that they have gained some or the other ailment and some some illness and uh, you know to, to treat them they are being taken to hospital and they were finally operated without their consent and their kidneys were taken away uh, we had one such case also like we interviewed that boy in the blue shirt he did not want to uh, bring his name to surface but uh, he 
uh, he confessed that that he was told that he is he is being treated for something else and then his kidney was taken up later when he uh, went back to nepal and he got uh, you know he he had developed some complications and we got it himself tested he came to know that one of his kidneys are missing as compensation he was given rupees 6 lakhs so uh, see these these prices are being paid but today uh, the people are less uh, less of people are being fooled because they are now aware and they know how much price can their kidneys fetch for them in fact we met one of the families three members of those families have given kidney each at one decade from now so every 10 years one person is giving kidney because the family is uh, falling short of finances and this is the way they have found out uh, to you know to sell off one of the kidneys of the family members whenever they are short of money or whenever they want to uh, you know uh, do a marriage in the family there some other function you they want to buy something uh, you know uh, to meet their financial demands basically it has now gone beyond basics it's not just about survival but to attain any luxury to to you know to conduct a marriage in a some uh, mammoth way on a big celebration this is now how they, it is developing and prices go as high as 12 to 15 lakhs while those who are not very well aware they also settle for a meager amount of 4 to 6 lakhs uh, and this is about the donors if we talk about the middlemen and the doctors doctors are paid usually 3 to 4 lakhs rupees uh, per surgery because the you know the surgeries are conducted mostly in makeshift uh, clinics uh, which are not even hospitals and in fact we have seen in some of the cases like we heard uh, joint commissioner of police meenu choudhury from delhi uh, she had been saying that uh, they had raided one such setup of clinic where uh, some persons were arrested in fact in that case in that particular case the person who was operating uh, these patients was not even a doctor he was just uh, uh, from one of delhi's private reputed hospitals he was one of the attendants uh, you know who had been performing surgeries on these people uh, and these people who perform uh, surgeries uh, are paid uh, some uh, 1 to 2 lakh while middlemen also get the same amount so this is the monetary distribution among the, uh, in, in this racket but uh, see uh, like delhi police also said that they have time and again laid hands on such rackets active in delhi and previously also in 2016 five people were arrested so they have very much penetrated into delhi's uh, or you know other indian states as well right anvit as you mentioned that the nepal authorities are well aware of this racket which has been going on so what is the action taken by the nepal government is there any action being taken at all by the government uh, given that they are well aware of the fact that this racket has been going on the anti human trafficking bureau in nepal is quite active and so is the nhrc but nhrc's domain only comes after the police's action uh, when the police does not take action in any case or does not register any fir then nhrc comes into picture but see uh, we'll have to understand that all these problems are beyond prosecutions and beyond legal actions there need to be certain programs by the government certain awareness programs some employment program because see this the, uh, why this problem has generated is only because of the poverty and unemployment in nepal and that is the problem uh, why you know it has risen to this level that uh, you know uh, we are reporting it right now and uh, these are there they need to be some awareness programs also along with the education and uh, employment program there need to be legal awareness programs as to uh, people don't know what legal trouble they can get into see these people come from a background where they do not know what legal trouble they can attract when they go out and sell off their kidneys or their organs they are uh, completely unaware and uh, when when an fir is registered on them they are totally clueless what to do and how to go about the legal cases and what are the legalities what are the acts in nepal that you know that prevent a person from giving away their organs in the illegal way 
so uh, these are the complications that uh, people uh, fall prey to and uh, in fact they are not very well aware uh, along with that uh, social economic problem is also one of the big problems why nepal is facing such a crisis we met some uh, senior officials there who did not want to come on record who did not want to speak us on camera but they told us that the main problem lies in the social economic problems because people are very uh, poverty stricken and they they, uh, they do not uh, have uh, you know enough infrastructure to uh, come out and earn money and feed their family and this is the way that they find this is a shortcut that they find to feed their families at every uh, you know at at the intervals of some 10 to 12 years one of the family members goes out and gives away their kidneys and these people are very easy to track because they lack finances they are very easy to lure these rackets in uh, working in most of them active in india who are working you know across uh, international borders like india and nepal they uh, zero down on such people it is the modus operandi that they uh, find out these people who are who are desperate you know, who are in desperation cairo one of the middle east's main business hubs but now a darker trade is thriving the network is wide from migrant smugglers to some of egypt's leading doctors a crumbling health system and shortage of organs has meant that people wait for years so turn to the black market where profits are huge if you've got money anything is possible this man matches up those wanting to buy with those desperate enough to want to sell their organs conflict in the middle east has made his job easier what he's doing is illegal but he now claims to feel remorse so explains the trade to us people came to me wanting to sell their organ to pay to be smuggled abroad money never lasts long but the promise of a safe life and opportunities overseas are a pretty good incentive organ donation is complicated here no money can change hands and you can only donate to someone from the same nationality but there are always ways to get around the law if someone's got dark skin for example they could pass as sudanese the brokers just make him a fake passport you can buy the passports from the streets it's really not a big deal Authorities claim they're trying to crack down on this trade. Last year, they conducted a raid of multiple clinics, resulting in the arrest of 45 people, among them doctors and nurses. Millions of pounds were recovered, yet for many, the profits outweigh the risks. We're on our way to meet a doctor who we've been told works as a surgeon within the organ trade. We're going in undercover, and our story is that my father's in desperate need of a kidney transplant but can't find a donor. Medical costs for a legal transplant are around $3000 but we've been told to say we'll pay whatever's necessary this is illegal Assalamu alaikum Dr Ahmed Mustafa works for the police he reassures us that he can help I have a man who will die okay ماشي هو لو الاوبشن موجود هتلاقينا اوتوماتيك على الرقم ده بنكلمه عشان بجهز نفسي بص انا هجيب كاش ينفع تبقى تقريبا 40 people come from across the middle east to buy kidneys This man was on the government waiting list for months 
until his health deteriorated to the point that the family decided to buy a kidney. I ask him, what if something happens to the donor? Will I not be held responsible? During our investigation, we learnt of a man who died after selling his kidney. The risks are huge, but so is the desperation for a better life. I came to Cairo to try and make a living. But I didn't find a job. Someone suggested selling a kidney for money. I asked how much, he told me $8,000, I said yes. When Ahmed arrived in Cairo three years ago, he thought he could make ends meet by selling one of his kidneys for money. But for this young Sudanese refugee who did not want to show his face on camera, the operation turned into a nightmare. I came out of the operating room and I was taken to an apartment. I still felt the effects of the anesthesia. I slept a little, and when I woke up, there was no one left, nothing. I just found 50 euros under the pillow. Now I'm sick and tired, and I still feel a lot of pain. Undocumented migrants are an easy target for organ traffickers, as are the poorest in Egyptian society. According to the World Health Organization, Egypt has one of the highest rates of illegal organ transplants in the world, after China, the Philippines and India. The Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees in Cairo is well aware of the problem. Socioeconomic difficulties generally pose a lot of challenges on refugees and non-refugees. And it can push a lot of people to adopt negative coping mechanisms to try to survive the day-to-day -day challenges of, of our lives. That being selling their organs, refugees and asylum seekers can be exposed to a, a wide number of risks based on that vulnerability. In Egypt, the sale of organs is illegal. Only donations are allowed. But by promising large sums of money or using threats and intimidation, organ traffickers easily force their victims to sign a donation authorization. In this kidney center in Mansoura, Professor Mohammed Ghunayim has made the fight against the illegal sale of organs his primary focus. He says the existing laws are easy to circumvent. The poor man or woman who is ready to donate, will go to a police station and make a statement, approved, stamped, that she is donating her kidney for the sake of God, for the sake of spiritual reason. So if you print this paper, this document, I'm donating my kidney for you for the sake of God, spirit, whatever, okay, on the surface, no financial elements are involved, but in fact, there is a financial element. Finding a kidney in the classifieds or on social media in Egypt is shockingly simple. Middlemen openly leave their contact information and telephone numbers on Facebook. We contacted one of them. Hello? Uh, 
تمام اللهم صل على النبي هو التكلفه التوتال كله بيبقى من 180 ل 190 190 190 بس حضرتك هتتكلف بالعمليه وكل حاجه صح؟ كل حاجه بالمتبرع بالاشخاص كله 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 بس ده مش غالي شويه ولا ايه؟ بص انت تعمل لك مستشفى اول حاجه خمس نجوم على ايد اكبرك الرحيم To confirm the offer was real, we sent a hidden camera into the hospital mentioned by the organ broker, a medical institution in central Cairo not known for organ transplants. Once inside, a hospital staffer immediately explained the process. <laughs> In recent months, several high-profile trials of organ traffickers have made headlines in the Egyptian press. But with a law that's easy to circumvent, it's unlikely that authorities will be able to properly crack down on illegal organ transplants. Hujer is like millions of Chinese migrant workers, young, poor, and struggling to find a way to make money, a perfect candidate for China's organ traffickers. Last year, he became so desperate that he contacted a company on the internet to sell one of his kidneys. I lost all my money gambling and I borrowed more than 2,500 euros from my friends. But then I had no way of paying them back. So I went to see my father and I told him, if you don't help me, I will find other ways to pay back the money. I then came up with the idea of selling a kidney and I went on the internet. There are dozens of websites which offer payment for organs. After making contact with one, Hu Jie traveled 1,000 kilometers to the north of China to meet the traffickers as well as the kidney recipient. Once he got there, though, he changed his mind, but it was too late. He was forced to go through with the operation and received very little in return. The recipient of the kidney paid 38,000 euros. I got 3,400 euros. And the hospital, the hospital's agent and the surgeon got 23,000. Hu Jie is not alone. Thousands of young Chinese reportedly offer themselves as living donors every year. This video purports to show 30 men sharing an apartment while waiting for operations. They advertise in hospital bathrooms like this one in Shanghai or on the internet, which has helped the booming black market. Websites like this one where so-called doctors offer to act as organ middlemen. We call them pretending to be a potential donor. First you pay a deposit, 63 euros, and you can sell your kidney between 56 and 100,000 euros. Once we receive the deposit, we'll send someone to take you to hospital. China's black market is able to prosper because of a serious lack of people willing to donate organs legally. There are 150 times more patients waiting for transplants than there are registered donors. The Chinese are heavily influenced by Confucian concepts. Our bodies are given to us by our parents, belong to them. We need to keep them whole. These ideas are thousands of years old and make people reluctant to donate their organs. The Chinese government is trying to change people's mentality about becoming registered donors. However, most transplanted organs in China still come from executed prisoners. And while the authorities claim that all have given their consent,
they are keen to move away from criticism about the practice that is often leveled at them from human rights groups. Focus Chinese atrocities against minorities are well known, but now a non profit group, the China Tribunal at the United Nations Human Rights Council hearing in Geneva, claimed that China is engaged in widespread harvesting of human organs of religious and ethnic minorities. The organization says that Uyghur Muslims and the Falun Gong religious groups were subjected to the worst kind of atrocities. A spokesman for the group described China cutting out the hearts and other organs from living, blameless, harmless, peace-loving people. China has so far denied large-scale harvesting of organs, admitting to using executed prisoners' organs in the past. China claims to have stopped the practice, though, in 2015. The reality is far different, though, as China continues to fuel a thriving market for human organs. I was doing an internship at the Shenyang Army General Hospital. At that time, I took part in a military mission. Along with three doctors and two nurses and under armed escort, he was driven in an ambulance to an area around Dalian in China's northeast. The ambulance drove to a very remote place in the wilderness. Then we heard a gunshot. It wasn't long before several soldiers carried a man over. At the time, I saw that his neck was all covered by blood and his throat was bloody. Zheng witnessed doctors removing kidneys from the prisoner. He motioned for me to cut one particular blood vessel. As soon as it was cut, his blood instantly flowed out and it was hot. I was panicking and very shocked at the time. But I saw that the other people present had no expression on their faces. After the kidneys, the doctors instructed him to take out the eyeballs. I said that I couldn't do it at all. I was near collapse at that time and my body kept on shaking. One of the doctors removed the eyeballs and after all was done instructed George to stuff the body into a bag, which was carried away by soldiers. I asked, what about the leftover bodies? He said that there was another military vehicle that would destroy or burn them. After they came back to Shenyang, he witnessed the organs being implanted into a waiting patient. He was told to sit aside and take a rest. The whole thing shook him profoundly. After I went home, I had a high fever for a few days. Afterwards, I talked with someone at the hospital to tell them that I would not go there anymore. I said I could work elsewhere, but I wouldn't do this job again. To this day, George is haunted by the memory of that day in the mountains and wilderness. Who was the victim? I thought, he also has parents. His family didn't know anything about this cruel event. He decided to leave China. But I know that the Chinese Communist Party would assassinate people who are aware of this to silence them. So when I thought about this, I thought that since I'm alive, I should stand up to testify. Because tens of thousands of families in China don't know that their loved ones died in such a cruel way. Mă suna Adam pe cutare, cutare, fata cutare, vezi că o să vină în arad, în gard. Și mi-a zis, de ce nu te bași tu pe femei? Și așa, și așa am început cu, și eu cu femeile. Și am văzut că se câștigă bani și am continuat drumul. Până în 2007, spre 2008. Aveam pe cineva aici în România care a fost și el condamnat. 
Și le căuta aici, în România, pe fete și îi plăteam 500 de euro pentru una. Ce-mi găsa el. Și el mi le dădea mie și o plecam cu ele dincolo. Erau aici, în România, și făceau chestia asta, practicau prostituția. Și el le întreba, mă, nu vrei să pleci dincolo? Uite, am pe cineva, uite, așa, așa, să câștigă mult mai bine, zice. Și el atunci acceptau, care vrea să meargă. Erau multe care nu acceptau, le erau frică sau chestii din astea, că le dăm țape sau nu le mai dăm banii sau... Știau pentru ce merg, da. Deci știau, că m-am înțeles cu ele, zic, facem jumate, jumate din câștigul vostru și au acceptat, era totul ok. Deci știau pentru ce merg, nu au fost forțate, nu puteai să le obligi sau să le forțezi. Dacă le obligi să le forțezi, fug, nu stau, înțelegi, trebuie să te comporți cât mai frumos cu o femeie, ca să o ții lângă tine. E bine că femeia e mereu ca animalul, dar na, în fine, unele dintre ele. Acolo nu poți să mergi pe cont propriu cum o vine, că trebuie să ai o protecție. Mai sunt care sunt pe cont propriu, dar foarte puține. Deci trebuie să ai un sprijin lângă tine. Vine cineva să ia de ele sau chestii din astea. Ce fac ele? Ea fiind femeie să poate lupta cu un bărbat sau chestii din astea. Deci eram tot timpul pe intervenție, cum să zice, eram în jurul lor, mă plimbam cu mașina. Deci nu, nu poți să stai singur acolo, ca femeie. Prima dată am început cu două și pe rând s-au adunat, în termen de doi ani și ceva, aproape trei ani, am avut 16 femei la stradă, dar nu le-am avut pe toate odată. Deci cele mai multe am avut opt. Deci le... Când începeau ele ca să, să, ăsta, să o dea în dragoste cu alții sau chestii din astea, de și le aduceam în România, le lăsam în România, la ele acasă, de unde erau orașele și plăteam chirie, le mâncarea, le făceam cadouri, le scoteam, deci nu le țineam închise în casă sau chestii din astea, nu. Cadourile și alea ce le cumpăram lor, le luam din banii mei. Cadouri ce aur, eu cu ăsta eram. Le cumpăram aur, le luam. Și vedeam că se uitau ele mai lung în magazine, în asta tot timpul. Păi făcea jumate, jumate cu mine și restul și le trimitea acasă, la părinții lor, în România. Cheltuiau altele, nu prea se înțelegeau cu bani mulți ele. Cheltuiau ca femeile, pe toate minunile. Da, știau părinții, o știau ce fac, aia făcea și aici, în România. Deci nu știam că mă afectează chestia asta în România cu femeile. Am știut că e infracțiune. Nu am știut, dar știam să ocupa dracu cu așa ceva, nu mă ocupam. Adică e variantă, e. Smătrite, sunt e razne. Samăi priapnăi, ca bă, în raionii 60 tisici uie. Este pe 30, pe 25, tot ce o zăvistă să stăie, scăvim, tăc să mă o donără. A ce mă tăcă răzniță vălăcă? Ну, как я и говорил, все зависит от самого донора, от повреждений. Плюс ко всему, знаете, груз, скажем так, хрупкий. И во время транспортировки, ну, цена может измениться. Какие пошкоджены? Да, там ничего критичного, может, звуковая контузия. Сам давайте я вам сейчас покажу. I dropped the donor at a given place, but not the hospital. Because these people don't trust anyone, including me. 
They take him, they open him up, and take whatever they want from inside. All I know is a donor goes in with two kidneys and comes back with one. The man known only as Abbas says he arranged dozens of illegal surgeries in the past few months. He says he gets $25,000 for each of them and show no remorse for what he's doing. I would have no problem selling the whole of Syria if I could. Business is business. Lebanon is home to one and a half million Syrian refugees. In the countryside, the situation is even worse. This was my son's daily path to school, Halfus Kastari tells us. His son went missing 11 years ago. He used to walk around this hill. His school was right behind it. The Gastaris live in this house underneath Castle Petrella. Like them, four other families lost their children in the same week. Before my brother disappeared, an Italian company was here supposedly looking for oil. And after a week, it happened. My brother just disappeared one day after school. Did the company have equipment? Yes, they had all sorts of measuring devices with them and used to park the car in front of the garden. But after my brother had vanished, they too were gone. So many people went missing in Albania that a private TV channel has made the search of missing persons its main evening programme. Kuye, Where Are You?, is on every day from Monday to Friday between 7.30 and 9.30pm. For the past two years, presenter Edo Stinto and her team have done nothing but search for missing persons. Now another channel is launching a similar programme. Since we started the programme, we've come across 600 cases of missing persons. About 30% of the missing are children who have been abducted in mysterious circumstances. According to our statistics and research, the majority of missing children fell into the hands of people traffickers, though some were adopted illegally and others were in all likelihood victims of organ trafficking. Tirana. Nobody knows exactly how many people live here. There hasn't been a population census since the fall of the Soviet Union. And with birth registers incomplete, it is all too possible to disappear without trace. Eva Zajmi, Minister of the Interior and coordinator of the fight against people trafficking. The largest group targeted by people traffickers are women who are forced into prostitution and their children. Their abducted become slaves, part of organized crime, victims of the sex trade, or, in the most tragic cases, subject to organ extraction. 18th century icons and Orthodox churches have made the East Albanian town of Korka, near the Greek border, famous. So has organized child trafficking. Dicen que de COVID no entregan los cuerpos y vacían los cuerpos y venderán esos órganos. ¿Cómo está esto de corrupto? ¿Cuánta gente habrán matado con engaños? Y los médicos se prestan para eso. Entonces aquí nos damos cuenta en este video. Si fuera una clínica... Any military conflict provides the most lucrative opportunities for so-called black transplantologists. 
This criminal business particularly thrived in Kosovo, from where there was a prodigious flow of organs to Europe. Today, Ukraine is the number one base for black transplantology. The illegal organ market was created in Ukraine long before the outbreak of hostilities. After Kiev unleashed a war in the Donbass in 2014, this criminal business began to flourish, and today the war-torn country has become a gold mine. Years ago, OSCE representatives confirmed that dozens of military and civilian bodies with their organs cut out had been found in the war-torn territories of Donbass. During a war, a huge number of people go missing, get injured, and often end up on the operating table, where organs can be extracted from them without any legal procedures. Their bodies are then sent to the crematorium, and these persons are reported missing. Often, dying soldiers become unwitting donors, but also their wounded comrades whose lives could have been saved. Civilians are not exempt from this practice. According to the most conservative estimates, the International Transplant Network earns about $2 billion a month in Ukraine. Yulia Nazarenka, children's ombudsman in the Lugansk People's Republic, is investigating cases of missing children. Со всей республики было вывезено 272 ребенка сироты и детей, оставшихся без попечения родителей. Это школы, интернаты, детские дома и дом ребенка. По требованию Луганской Народной Республики детей не отдали. С этой проблемой обращалась Луганская Народная Республика на Минскую площадку переговорную для того, чтобы вернуть 272 детей. Судьба этих детей неизвестна. Сегодня огромная проблема узнать, как состоялась судьба этих детей, где они находятся, живы ли они вообще. 2022 saw a repeat, with children once again being evacuated from territories controlled by Kyiv. Украина продолжает свою политику. На территориях 15 городов и районов, которые были временно подконтрольны Украине, также располагались школы-интернаты. Их посадили в автобусы и вывезли за пределы территории Луганской Народной Республики. Город Мукачево, город Хуст, Закарпатскую область на территории с перспективой выезда в Польшу. Связаться с детьми невозможно. Примерное количество около 200 человек. Hundreds of orphans from the Donetsk People's Republic were evacuated in the same manner. But it's anyone's guess how to find children who have essentially been abducted from Donbass. Ukraine ignores all international legislative norms and refuses to say anything about the fate of children it has taken. Не говорят информацию о детях, потому что их ждет такая вот судьба, когда детей пускают на органы. Черная трансплантация. Если прячут детей, то это неспроста. The Red Cross seems to be suppressing information regarding the missing children from Donbass. Doctors Without Borders organization, allegedly involved in human organ trafficking in Kosovo, appeared just as the children were being taken away. Их не было до момента вывоза детей. Во время деятельности организации врачи без границ были выявлены факты предоставления гражданам медицинских препаратов с законченным сроком годности. Поэтому в дальнейшем они прекратили деятельность на территории Луганской Народной Республики. 
Macabre statements of Ukrainian figures such as Dr. Chernov reinforce concern about the fate of the children evacuated from Donbass. Dubbed the Ukrainian Dr. Mengler, Chernov openly calls for doing away with Donbass's children, saying, those in the third row, in fact, are to be killed. Those in the second row, in a year or two, they'll move to the third row. Собирала детей по изюму, маленьких от трех до шести до семи лет, и привозила именно вот в этот пункт. Там их раздевали на первом этаже, а на втором, на втором их раздевали. Как ненужный материал и просто хранили там в ямах или, или куда они вывозили. И вот эти ребята, они, знаете, говорили, как будто они как, как будто какую-то скотину завалили, поросенка или там кролика. Да? Ну они да, привозили. Как будто какая-то ферма, понимаете? Вот эта имплантация. Да? Забирали органы. Слышал об этом, но не верил. Пока своими глазами не увидишь, не поймешь. А когда увидишь, не простишь. We schedule it so that everything overlaps, so that we have a recipient ready. Whatever can we say. Is the child still alive when it's being taken to the operating room? It's done on the spot in the villa. Is that where the organs are retrieved? Yes, there's a special sterile room there. When they torture those children, the children get broken, their arms get broken, their legs. Their legs get pulled out of the hips. They often get beaten up. Torn apart. Organs, buttholes. Do you mean those little babies get their legs pulled out? Yes. So it's sadism. Yes, sadism. Infants always suffer. They all do. Later that child is useless. Older children are exploited for a while. They're addicted to the drugs they're sedated with. But infants become useless. They go for spare parts. Older kids. can't take it mentally. Also because of the drugs, they ration them out to make the costs as low as possible. Because the kids are nothing more than just merchandise. That also has an impact on their mental state. One boy slashed his wrists. He couldn't take it. All that manhandling and the kind of life he had there. They did save him, of course. 
but he was sent for spare parts. The drugs put children in such extreme psychotic state. That they hurt themselves. The kids' clients are very rich. They even come in their own private jets and helicopters from fuck who knows where. They are picked up at different locations. Filthy rich. They pay a fortune to spend time with a child. Everything's arranged with a medical team. They know the child will not survive. And if it becomes crippled for life, nobody's going to look after it. So it immediately becomes an organ donor. Those brothels have branches all over the world. With operating rooms. There are high security sites. Few people know about them. There are no regular brothels. We're talking about huge money here, so... They are perfectly organized. It's not just some dude or madam sitting there. It's all professionally set up. Like a corporation? Yes, like a corporation. As complex as a corporation. There must be a medical team on standby. Someone must look after those kids. Someone must organize. The transplants and everything. There must also be someone that helps them. Search clients for the organs out. It will continue. The demand is huge and... These brokers hide in the shadows. When people have no money, when they have nothing else, kidneys are becoming the only form of currency available to them. Back in 2018, Sangeeta Kashyap was looking forward to a fresh start. The offer was almost too good to be true a stable job in Delhi with a generous salary and the dream of building up their savings and retirement fund. The day after her arrival, she was taken to a clinic somewhere in the city. She was told that her employers required a medical check. A few days later, she overheard herself described as a kidney donor during a hospital visit. Despite threats, she took the matter to the police and her complaint was the spark that uncovered a rampant trade in human organs involving collusion between organized criminals and corrupt doctors, police and medical administration staff. That a lot of these people that we would consider the, 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 the tops of their organized crime rings are doctors. And they're not the ones who go out to the villages and convince somebody to sell an organ for uh, pennies on the dollar, uh, but they are the ones organizing this trade. Nunca una gente que tenga dinero va a vender su órgano. Siempre tiene que ser una gente pobre. Kashyap's story is by no means unique. 
neither is the body trait a purely Indian concern. She was just one potential victim in a global industry that turns over an estimated $1 billion every year. This is the business of crime. And in this episode, we're exploring the global body trade, the ways it operates and the risks involved for the desperate people at both ends of the deal in what is an unregulated and often perilous market. It's exploitation at the highest degree. So it's, it's literally people's bodies being taken from them. Then Black market organ transplants have a long and bloody history, but it's only in the last couple of decades that the issue has exploded into a global concern. And there's plenty of money to be made. A clean heart or lungs will likely set you back at least $130,000, with a liver or kidney coming in at under six figures. Corneas are cheapest of all, according to the same research, coming in at a mere $30,000. Every piece of me has the ability to make money on a market. And I'm worth, if I were to sell it, probably somewhere in the order of $250,000. This is no niche concern. It's estimated that anything between 5 to 10% of worldwide organ transplants involve illegal payment. Kidneys are the most popular with the WHO estimating that 10,000 are sold every year on the global black market. This is a story about supply and demand, and there are very few places on earth where the latter doesn't outstrip the former. Shortage of organs for transplantation is a constant international problem. In the US alone, thousands die every year waiting for new kidneys. Others, like China, employ even more creative solutions, such as allegedly harvesting the organs of executed prisoners. The Chinese government says it's reformed the practice. Now they say they only recover organs from volunteers. But some say the practice continues. They had these, I mean, essentially organ conveyor belts where these prisoners would be anesthetized, but still conscious and be completely harvested. They, they'd harvest their corneas, their, their kidneys, and, and end with their hearts. Uh, and they would just sort of like liquidate these bodies and then, and then sell them mostly to the domestic market, but also the international market. Transactions often take place online, with Facebook an endearingly popular marketplace. Others operate through slightly more sophisticated scams. In September 2021, Indian police arrested a Nigerian man in Bangalore. Gregory Yamade allegedly spent three years running an elaborate online kidney selling ring, duping poverty-stricken customers with fake websites, mocked up to resemble those of some of the country's leading hospitals. When people have no money, when they have nothing else, they're, they're having to sell their kidneys, so kidneys are becoming the only form of currency available to them. Some have made the libertarian argument for the body trade. Why should it be illegal when demand is so high? Surely, with even the impoverished sellers getting what they need, it's the definition of a victimless crime? This categorically isn't the case. For many, free will and consumer choice have nothing to do with it. Many participants in the body trade are victims of human trafficking, tricked into giving over their organs for little to no pay. Appalling stories are easy to find. In October 2016, 
Pakistani police freed 24 people from an apartment block in Rawalpindi. They were due to be taken to a nearby hospital for forcible kidney removal after months in captivity. The police are convinced that most of the people in that apartment were tricked and had no intention of selling an organ when they arrived there. They've arrested four people so far and they've charged them with offences including abducting and imprisoning people. They say they're now searching for four doctors who are apparently the kingpins. Due to its secrecy, the scale of the problem is hard to assess. Naturally, field traffickers publicly advertise their organ farms. In 2018, the UN published a report detailing 700 cases of organ trafficking, which is likely a wild underestimate. There are no statistics out there that accurately catalog how large the illegal market for organ trading is. It would be ridiculous to think that mafia groups are submitting statistical information to regulatory bodies. The trade thrives on desperation. Egypt is another country at the front line of the body trade. Refugees make for a captive client base as they pass through on their way across the Mediterranean. Selling organs might be the only means of paying smugglers for uncertain passage. They were targeted basically because of their financial situation and because they were less likely to report anything to the authorities. The body trade isn't quite a straightforward tale of winners and losers. Misery certainly isn't exclusive to the sellers. Often buyers end up in hospital with complications of their own, following botched or unsafe transplants. They're not necessarily being screened properly, or they're not necessarily being matched directly with the recipients. There's been studies done with patients who've returned from overseas having purchased a kidney, and they've had a number of health complications. So infections and poor outcomes with how they've received the kidney itself. Exploitation runs two ways, a fact that illegal organ entrepreneurs are only too aware of. Desperation makes people do previously unthinkable things. Well, now you've seen in unseen places, all put together in one place. Yet we talk about the Chinese and the Uyghurs, but no one's talking about here. I mean, I'd blow up a train that had cargo on it that was worse than anything. I guess I'll just get into my uh, re-piping and watering up for intel quicker. But the question you should be asking yourself is what's coming through our borders and why is it so unchecked? Fentanyl has components, specific ones, that maintain the integrity of organs. Do you trust what's on the cargo manifest? Do you know it's true? How many are unmarked? These are all questions we should be asking, considering we've had so many almost purposeful derailments. More on that at some point. For now, the truth is stranger and more evil than fiction. I mean, look at the Grammys. Now think of it. How many heart transplants has George Soros had? What about the late Queen of England? I can keep going. Those are real questions. Well, I guess that really was a softer version. It could have been a little bit more harsher. 
But, you know, sometimes a lot of people say, well, if this is there, why aren't people saying it? As you can see, even Vice talked about it. Reuters has done exceptional work. What's going on in Ukraine? The question is, why is anyone, why is not anyone <laughs> looking at what's happening in our southern border? What about all those kids that were flown in in a plane in the middle of the night that landed in the middle of nowhere in New York? Where are they? These are undocumented people, faceless, nameless. What are they? Children? Humans of a lesser God? I'm going to remind you something I told you and that I've been saying. Jeffrey Epstein rubbed elbows with very high up there politicians. Kings, queens, princes, sheikhs, you name it. And scientists. Do you know how many transplants Stephen Hawkins got? How about a lot of the politicians that you see every day on your screens? Maybe your actors that have issues? See, this isn't some botch thing. What's happening right now in Syria and Turkey in Lebanon At our southern border, northern border, our Native American reservations, and then on, is just people desperate that will sell their own eyes so that their families can escape, that will sell their own kidneys so that they can pay their debt or the coyote. But now, I did have that clip from the second chapter where the children that they abuse out of vices and the things they go through is horrific. Well, there's medical teams on standby for spare parts, of course. Now, while many of us can talk about child trafficking and Pizzagate, it's a lot more nefarious and a lot more evil. It's almost as if we're the piggies in the pen and we're realizing that we're piggies in a pen. I hope that you don't seek to find out more things you don't even know you know. And then people ask me why I'm in Ohio. I guess it's pretty evident. On that note, I wish you a good night. And I want you to remember that Epstein ran an AI program in Ethiopia under Tedros when he was the the Secretary of Health there with children. (laughs) Children for AI. I want you to think about that. Good night. See you tomorrow on the air.